Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dindy. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side, LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, everyone. This is Talea Dendi from OnTheOtherSide.life, and you're listening to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Trish Perry. Trish is a results coach and 10-year breast cancer survivor. Trish helps professionals who have been thrown off track by an unexpected hardship to find their inner power, direction, and balance again to regain success and joy in their lives. Trish was that professional 10 years ago, pre-cancer. She had a high-powered job and was raising three kids when multiple adversities hit. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, had a double mastectomy, her 91-year-old father had brain surgery, and her sister died of cancer, all within nine months. Trish's son describes her life in two phases, pre-cancer, corporate badass mom, and post-cancer Zen mom. Trish became a coach by accident and adversity and continues coaching with passion and purpose. This is in her Zen mom phase. Since 2015, Trish has coached over 100 leaders to navigate challenges of life and gain their inner power, balance, and direction to have success and joy in life again. She's also facilitated dozens of workshops and been a keynote speaker to audiences across the U.S. Trish is also an author. Her new book, Real, Raw, and Relatable, is her journey from corporate badass mom to Zen mom, which launched on October 4th, 2022. Trish, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. As I mentioned, Trish, you were diagnosed with stage one lobular breast cancer. 
Please tell us more about that cancer and uh, your experience. Absolutely. I had actually just lost 60 pounds. I went to the doctor. I was so excited. I had a great checkup. And then I had a mammogram. Normally, nothing comes back. And I got a phone call. And they said, we just changed the machine. It's a much higher density machine. So don't worry about it. 99.9%, nothing is wrong. I went in, had a second one. They called me back. You need to go in for an ultrasound and a biopsy. And I said to my husband, I just want you to let you know I have breast cancer. And he said, stop being so negative. I said, I'm not being negative. I just, there's something in my heart and soul that just tells me that I have breast cancer. So I should probably also mention that my sister at the same age, 48, was diagnosed with breast cancer. So there was just something about that where I just thought, I think I have it. So I went in to get the ultrasound and the ultrasound text was going over my breast. And I said, it's right there. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, my breast cancer is right there. He said, it is so small. There's no way you could feel that. Tell me exactly where it is. So I pointed to exactly where it was and there it was. So they went in, did a biopsy and it came back as stage one lobular invasive breast cancer. I talked to people about the fact that when you're diagnosed with cancer in general, it's like being thrown onto a bullet train. So you're thrown on this train, you don't have the time to research like you would something serious like that. All of a sudden, you've got a date for your surgery, that you've got the surgeon, you've got the oncologist, everything is pretty much done for you. And it's like a matter of weeks. That's what it was like. And then the doctor won't tell you or give you any advice. Mm -hmm. Doctor will just give you the facts. And what I found is the nurses are your best friends in cancer because they will talk to you. So while I was in with the nurse and of course in tears crying, I said, what should I do? She said, well, you can do one of two things, one of three things. You can get a lumpectomy. She said, with lobular invasive, I would not suggest it, but you can, or you can get a single, or you can get a double mastectomy. And I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, I'm going to be really honest. Those women who get a double mastectomy are usually much more satisfied than people with a single mastectomy because visually, you will at least look balanced. That one done, there's always a difference. So it's always a reminder. Mm -hmm. I said, no, I'm not supposed to tell you any of this, but I just wanted to let you know what different patients do. That's what I can tell you is usually the best outcome. So we brought it home to our kids. We sat them down in the living room and we said, we need to have a family meeting. And of course they're 17, 15 and 12 at the time. I'm like, what did we do wrong? (laughs) So we told them what the situation was and it was pretty solemn. And then all of a sudden my son at 17 said, I want you to get a double because we don't want to worry about it again. And besides how you are about symmetry, mama. (laughs) (laughs) And then my 15 year old daughter pipes up, Hannah, and she says, yeah, mama, a double would be best because do you really want to have one Victoria's Secret boob and one mom boob? (laughs) So it was so funny. 
And all of a sudden we realized that we could deal with this from a place of humor versus sadness and dread. That's what the diagnosis was like through making our decision on what to do. Thank you for sharing that, Trish. So many great points made throughout what you just shared. You sat down and you talked with your children, which is so important. You were honest with them. And then also you tried to find the humor in it. You tried to figure out a way to work through it. That worked best for you and your family. And you know what? It's not the best solution for other people. It's cancer in general is very personal. And how people react to it is very personal. I remember a friend of mine saying about another friend, I can't believe she's not going to get a double mastectomy. That's what she needs to do. And I looked at her and I said, she needs to do what's right for her family and for her, not what other people think is right for them. It just depends on how you deal with things. And it's different in every case. It's so true. Really, it's about your quality of life. What do you want? And taking the time, even though there's already so much going on, but just taking that time to think about what's important to you. What are your values? And you're right. It can be tough to block out what other people think you should do, but it's about you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Trish, what was the hardest part of your cancer journey and how did you get through it? There were several, but I think the hardest part was something I just wrote a newsletter on, and it's called the Breast Cancer Imposter. So in my mind, I had set up rules for people who were breast cancer survivors, because everyone who I had ever known, they had the cancer, they had surgery, they had chemo. In my case, it's been 10 years, so it's not a new test anymore, but it was a fairly new test where after they took the breast, they tested some of the tissue and depending on the number that it came back on, determined if you didn't have to have chemo, you may have chemo or you definitely should have chemo. And my number was very low. So the doctor said, great news, you don't have to have chemo. And I said, what do you mean I don't have to have chemo? Every breast cancer patient has to have chemo. No, not anymore. It's based on life expectancy. We've done tests on thousands of women and here's what we're finding. And I went home and cried. Um, Yeah. Because in my mind, I had, so I had been diagnosed with the cancer. I had a radical mastectomy. So I didn't have no breasts anymore at that point. And I didn't have to have chemo. So I know it sounds strange, but I was like, I can't insult all of those women who went through the pain and the suffering of having chemo and losing their hair and losing their quality of life. I can't say I'm a breast cancer survivor. So I stopped telling people that I had breast cancer. And it wasn't until a friend of mine said, Trish, let's think about this. I had breast cancer. I had a lumpectomy and then I had chemo. So am I a breast cancer imposter? And I said, no, of course not. You had breast cancer, you had the surgery and you had chemo. And she said, I know Trish, but I had a lumpectomy and you had both breasts removed. Mm. Tell me how I am any more of a cancer survivor than you are. And it was at that point that the lights went off and I was like, oh my God, I am a breast cancer survivor. But during those months and year that I felt like I 
wasn't a survivor. That was the hardest part because I was going through the grief of breast cancer, losing my breasts, my life changing, and yet I couldn't admit that I was a cancer survivor. Does that make sense at all? It does. I understand it because, of course, I've been through cancer also. And I really can relate to what you're saying in some ways, because if our experiences, I think, are not as drastic or harsh as some other people's experiences, we say, how can we say that we went through what they went through? But cancer is cancer. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. That's such a good point. It is such a good point. And we do as a society, we're like, oh, they have it much worse than I do. I Mm -hmm. shouldn't complain. And again, just like the decision on what to do with the cancer is personal, so is your whole experience. Yeah. And you had to go through that. You had to have someone tell you, you have cancer. You know what I mean? Like that in itself is a lot to take in. So yes, you are a breast cancer survivor. I realize that now, but that was probably the hardest part because then when I would get sad and cry, This was my internal dialogue. What are you crying about? Other people have gone through chemo. You didn't have to go through chemo. What are you crying about? So then that beating yourself up for that, it just sends you deeper into that depression because then you don't, you feel like you don't have a reason to be sad and a reason to be mourning and grieving that loss. I have to ask, Trish, did you go with that prior to being diagnosed with cancer? Oh, absolutely. So what you need to understand is I was raised by a father who was a highly decorated full colonel in the army. He led one of the units that liberated Dachau concentration camp. So I was constantly in a state of how can I prove myself to my dad? Because his expectations were so high. So I grew up feeling like I was an imposter. Mm -hmm. Remember when I got my first job as a buyer out of college and I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to find me out. They're going to find out that I'm really not as good as they think I am. Then fast forward a couple of years later, I joined Target and I ended up being there for 20 years and I was a leader at Target. And Again, I just kept thinking, when are they going to find me out? When are they going to find me out? And in 2009, when the economy was really bad, it was laid off. My first thought was, see, they found me out. No. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question because you put it into context. It just makes sense that that would have happened with my breast cancer then. But I'm going to just mention this now. So I've written a book. It's called Real Raw and Relatable Corporate Badass Mom to Zen Mom. And the fact is the cancer really saved my life. It really took me from feeling like I was an imposter feeling like I always had to prove myself, feeling like I always had to control things. And he just laid it out. You can't control cancer. You can make the decision to have the surgeries, but it shows up in people's lives, no matter where they are in society, no matter where they are and earning money, it doesn't discern. You can't control that. So it gave me all kinds of different perspectives than I had before. Thank you, Trish, for sharing that. I just want to pull this out a little bit further so that the audience, just in case someone else out there is struggling with this, did that light switch turn on when your friend 
made that comparison and said, hey, am I not a breast cancer survivor? Was that really when it switched for you? Honestly, it was a whole room full of light switches. So you asked me what the hardest part of cancer was, and I gave you one piece. Here's Mm -hmm. the other piece. I was diagnosed in 2012 in July and had my surgery. From the time I was diagnosed, I had basically six major adversities happen within a nine-month period. So was diagnosed. I had a double mastectomy. I went back to work and my boss said, wow, it must have been really nice to have six weeks off and do nothing but watch TV and read books. Oh, wow. And I just looked at him and I thought, oh, you didn't just say that. I had to have a second surgery in January, swallowed it and went on with my job. Two weeks later, I got a call that my 91-year-old father was having emergency brain surgery. So we had to go back and forth to Chicago to nurse him back to health. Then we had to put my dog down. So my life had turned into a country song. And then in January, five days before my surgery, I got a call that uh, one of my sisters had stage four malignant melanoma and was going into emergency surgery. So I quit my job. I had my surgery. Two days later, I decided to ask for forgiveness versus permission. And I just went to Chicago. I didn't ask for permission. Good. And from the time I got the phone call, eight weeks later, she died. I'm sorry. Realizing that I wasn't an imposter was absolutely one of those light bulbs. But through those nine months and then through the next two years, the light bulbs and the light switches went off in many different places in my life. Yeah, Trish, that's really how it normally happens for people when they're diagnosed with cancer. Even in my own experience, a lot of light bulbs and switches went off. And it's something about that when your life is staring you in the face and you have all these important decisions to make that you really start to think about what is important to you. And I think that's what this is about too. Also realizing your worth. That's another another part. And the other thing I think that cancer does is it creates this resilience that you wouldn't otherwise have in your life. I call it gifts wrapped in sandpaper. So who wants to open a gift wrapped in sandpaper? No one. Your fingers are going to get bloody, et cetera. But if you can go through those experiences and you can figure out okay, what lessons am I learning here? And I'm not saying everything has a silver lining because for me is the way I look at it, but I do learn something from everything. As an example, that boss who made that really rude comment to me and then was not very gracious for the rest of my time at that company. When my sister was diagnosed with malignant melanoma, I would not have been able to quit my job so easily had he not said that. I understand. I likely would not have quit my job at all if I were still at Target. And I got to spend the last seven weeks of my sister's life with her versus just going on the weekends to visit. That's a blessing. So it it really is. So I think that's part of resilience is being able to find the lessons within whatever the adversity is. That's right. And own that, and then keep moving forward. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that, Trish. Very powerful. Thank you. What is something that you wish you had known before you were diagnosed with cancer? That it wasn't my fault. 
there are actually two things. The first is it wasn't my fault. So I'd lost the 60 pounds. I felt like I had done everything to get my body back into shape, et cetera. And then I ended up with breast cancer. So I felt like my body had betrayed me. And I felt like something I had done had caused the cancer. Again, now that I'm in a different place, the way that I look at it is, had I not gotten that healthy, I likely would not have gone into the doctor to get my physical to find the cancer. So it was because I was healthy that we were able to find it. Yeah, that makes sense. sense. Absolutely. Yes. The other thing I wish someone would have told me is I talked about being thrown onto a bullet train when you have cancer and then you're going through all your treatments and you're getting calls from nurses and from insurance, et cetera, making sure that you're doing okay. And you go into the office and everyone is just wonderful. You have this group of people who really support you. And then after I had my reconstructive surgery, it was gone. Yes. So it's like being thrown back off the bullet train and you have to get your bearings again, because even though your family and your friends are there supporting you, it's nothing like the medical community supporting you and making sure you have everything you need and asking if you are doing okay. And suddenly there's nothing. That was the other strange thing that nobody talks about. Nobody talks about it. And I'm so glad, Trish, that you shared that because that's common. I experienced that too. It's like when the treatment is done, it's okay. We'll see you in three to six months and get on with your life. What does that mean? I've been focused on this and I've had you walking with me all that time. And it can be kind of scary. Yeah, it can be, especially for people who are going through it and are like, wait, I'm trying to get my bearings because I've been thrown on the train. Being aware that when it is complete, there will be another transition. So how can you prepare for that transition? How can you make sure that you have support in other places? Do you happen to have a friend who's a doctor or a nurse or someone in the medical field that you could call with questions if you had questions? But I think that preparation for being thrown off the train is is more important for your mental health. That's right. We're being thrown on the train. They're trying to take care of your physical health. That makes sense. Yes, it does. I want to thank you for bringing that up because a lot of times when that happens and people feel that way, they wonder what's wrong with me. I should be happy right now. I got through treatment and this is behind me, but no, it's just like you said, the next phase. Right. Absolutely. There are so many of those instances where it's, I should be happy right now, or it's not as bad. And that gets back to the imposter syndrome, right? So it kind of all comes full circle. That's right. Another thing to point out is that there's so many changes that happen. It's from the moment you get that diagnosis, the rest of your life, really. And those changes, changes that you may not have wanted, that's grief in itself. You're grieving loss. You're grieving those changes, a lot of them. And people are not prepared for that because, again, no one talks about it. I'm so glad that you brought that up because people often feel that grief is the loss of a loved one. 
And grief is actually the loss of something or someone. Sometimes it's not that a loved one dies. Sometimes it's a divorce. Sometimes it's someone moving across the country. So that's actually one of the reasons I became a coach, because I not only had the cancer adversity, but then I had these multiple adversities on top of it, including my sister dying. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. So I took two years off to do critical caretaking of my father and of my family. And then I thought, okay, it's time for me to go back to corporate. I need to have done something in this two years, because if I try and go back, they're going to ask, well, what were you doing for two years? So, and this was part of that corporate badass persona of, I have to prove myself, right? Yeah. So I thought coaching is becoming pretty big within the corporate world. I'm going to go get my coaching certification to bring back with me because I loved the mentoring piece of my job when I was in corporate. So I got my certification, but that wasn't enough. So I got my mastery and now I'm ready to go back to corporate. And I was working with a woman who had a traumatic brain injury and she came into our last appointment and she was so happy. And she said, I got my job back and I love my new brain. Oh, wow. And I hope you know that you helped save my life. Tongue in cheek when you say, oh, thank you. You helped save my life. So that's what I thought it was. So I just started laughing and she looked at me really strangely. And she said, no, you don't understand. I hated my new brain. Mm -hmm. I wanted my old brain back. And I didn't know what to do. Through coaching, I realized that my new brain gave me so many things that I had wanted that I didn't have with my old brain. Do I miss my old brain? Absolutely. But it was at that moment that I realized my solution is not to go back to corporate. My solution is to help people who are in similar situations to what I was. So I decided that I was going to be impactful to individuals versus being transactional. In my corporate world, I talk about the fact that I became a coach by accident and by adversity, and I continue through passion and purpose. I love that. That's my purpose. My stated purpose is that I'm a transformist to help people realize their true potential, pass that positivity on to others, and create this magnification of positivity in the world. So I never would have gotten there had I not gone through my coaching classes because it was there that I found my purpose. That's why I say cancer saved my life. It sounds very strange and it is physically because I was working myself to death. I used to work about 80 hours a week, but emotionally, mentally, my relationships, my relationship with my family has all changed because of cancer. That's right. Thank you so much for going into detail and walking us through that transition and how it led you to your purpose, but then also emotional healing as well and getting those things that you need for yourself. So tell us more about harmonized coaching. And if people are interested, where can they find out more, Trish? Absolutely. So harmonized coaching is what I created when I decided to leave the corporate world and become a coach. The logo is three circles, and those circles are for home, for life, and for work. People talk about work-home balance, or they'll talk about work-life balance. In the end, you have this work-life, you have this home-life, and you have this thing called life. Mm -hmm. So 
the cancer that you and I both had didn't just affect our work. It didn't just affect our home. It affected everything in our lives. So that's why I have those three circles. And the three circles are put together like a Venn diagram because in the middle, there is this incredible balance that you can have with all three of those. Sometimes one of your circles is going to be bigger than the others. And you're, in my case, when we had cancer, our life circle is really big, but there was still work and there was still home. So you still have to balance all of that. So that's why I created what I did. So what I do now is I help professionals and executives who have been thrown off course by an unexpected hardship to find their balance, their power, and their direction again so that they can lead successful and joyful lives. At the end of the day, that's what we all want. And you get to define what does success mean. For me, success was climbing the corporate ladder. That is not success anymore. For me, success is helping my clients to find that power, that balance in their direction so that they're living successful lives again. It is about me and my relationships with my family and with my friends and with my spirit. It's just, it's so much more than climbing the corporate ladder. That's why I started Harmonized Coaching. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can go to harmonize with the letter U after it. So harmonizeu.com. That is my website. And there you can find my email address, etc. The book that I wrote, Real Raw and Relatable, is about my transformation from that corporate badass mom to what I still have not completely found, but found more <laughs> of that Zen mom. Yeah. And by the way, that was a that was a quote from my son. He said that he was really lucky because he had two moms. Nice. I said, no, I guarantee you, you've only had one. I have to start to prove it. <laughs> he said, no, you don't understand. You were a corporate badass mom, and we learned things like tenacity and our work ethic and how to stand up for ourselves and others. And then you got cancer and you left corporate and Aunt Betsy died. You went into coaching and you became a Zen mom. I said, well, what is a Zen mom? And he said, mommy, you're talking with me, not at me. Oh, nice. I know. Nice for a 23-year-old to come up. Wow. Yes. So that's why I do what I do. And that's why I wrote the book, because the book is 52 stories of personal stories of mine or of my clients. I think there are two stories that are my clients. And then I ask questions at the end of each of those chapters so that you can take my stories and think about your own story. Okay. So I ask questions like, when in your life did you feel like an imposter? So letting people know they're not alone. Right. Absolutely. It it was really to, how do I want to say this? It was to normalize all of those feelings that we have so that people didn't feel like they were alone. They don't feel like they're isolated. And they can create their own story because it's when you have the awareness and when you tell your own story That's that first level of really healing. Then when you talk about that story, that's the second. And then I think the third level of healing is when you can share it. So you and I are sharing our stories. And that's when the fear goes out of whatever story you've been telling yourself. That's right. And we, you and I are here being incredibly vulnerable and telling our stories and hopefully it'll help someone else. Yeah. I call vulnerability my superpower. 
It is. Once you tap into it, yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it, it can be tough getting there, but once you do, it's amazing. I know. Yeah. What you are doing is so important. Thank you. I just can't emphasize that enough to get these stories out in front of people so that they can hear, they can ask further questions, they can get help, whatever they need. Thank you, Trish. My pleasure. There's two things I want to touch on quickly before we end. I want to go in a little bit more detail because I know a lot of people struggle with grief. What Uh advice would you give someone experiencing grief? So this is going to sound really strange, but ritualizing your grief is really important. So what I suggest to people is that they choose a place in their home and they put all of their comforts within that place, like whether that's a weighted blanket, essential oils, things like that, pictures that make you feel good, those types of things, and then a journal. It doesn't have to be the same time every day. It's not that, but it's ritualizing grief, knowing that you have a safe place to go in your home where you can just cry and yell and do whatever you need to do and journal that. Get it all out of your head and onto paper because when you keep it in, your brain loves to ruminate. And so I liken it to rolling a snowball down a hill and what happens, the snowball gets bigger and bigger. So that thought you have just gets bigger and all of a sudden it feels like it's too big and you can't handle it. So that's one piece is ritualizing that grief. But the second piece is making a list of support that you have. And I suggest people do this before they go through grief, when they're in a good place and they realize, okay, who could I call if I just wanted to talk? Who could I call to vent? Who could I call that would come over and give me a hug? Who could I call to bring me a meal? Who could I call just to go to the movies with? Make that list of your entire support structure so that when you do have to go through grief, you're not racking your brain as far as, oh my God, who would ever want to help me with this? And a lot of times you can talk to those people before and let them know, hey, just so you know, this coach suggested that I create this grief list and you're on my grief list. If I ever need a meal, would you be willing? Absolutely, I would be. It's so helpful to do it in a good place and when you reach that grief. That's great advice. Makes total sense because once you get to that place, you could just reach for what you've already put in place. You don't have to put in the effort and energy into trying to create that or find it. What I can tell you, because there are going to be people who say, oh, I don't need to do that right now. What I can tell you is 100% of us will go through grief at some point in our adult life. 100% of us. So if I can guarantee you that, then it might be a good idea to put that in place. I agree. Thank you for sharing that, Trish. I end asking my guests two questions, but you have something very special that I would like for you to share with the audience instead. Please, Trish, read your letter to cancer. Oh, absolutely. I would be happy to. So I'm going to give you a little bit of context. This is actually in my book. I'm celebrating the 10-year anniversary of my breast cancer survival this year. And I wrote this letter about three years after my surgery, when I was chronically sad and mad about my own breast cancer. And instead of being angry, I chose to look at the gifts in my life. And so this is a result of that. Dear Cancer, as unusual as this may seem, this is a thank you letter. 
Do you cause pain and suffering? Yes, and I hate you for that. What you don't realize is that through all of the pain and suffering comes endless love, pure joy, wonderful and meaningful friendships, endless kindness that is magnified beyond imagination, and an appreciation for people so deep that it's indescribable. That was never your intention, so you don't win. You took my sister, you took my friends, and you tried to take me, but you still don't win. I ended up more in love, more alive, more gentle, more peaceful, and more appreciative. So again, you don't win. My children have seen such deep love and gratitude that they wouldn't otherwise have seen. They've experienced a way of seeing life that I could not teach them. So again, you don't win. You've given me wonderful opportunities like participating in the three-day breast cancer walk with friends. We have such great memories of the fun, the laughter, the support, the bonding, and the strength that was built through that experience. So again, you don't win. You've changed me. I'm a better mother, sister, friend, wife, and person than I was without your presence in my life. So again, you don't win. So cancer, in a strange way, I have to say thank you. You don't win. I do. Wow. I love that, Trish. Thank you so much. Very profound and very true. Sometimes it takes a while before you can get to that point. That's right. That's Um, part of the journey. Yeah, it really is. So hopefully if that touches one person, which it did touch you, then I've done my job. Yes. Very powerful. Where can people find your book, Trish, if they're interested? Absolutely. So you can buy it either on Barnes and Noble dot com or you can buy it on amazon.com both carry the book and it is in some barnes and noble bookstores i can't tell you who's carrying it but i know it's available in the twin cities i'm not sure where else they're carrying it around the country but definitely online you can find it Great. I will include the link to Harmonize Coaching, Trish's book in the listen notes so that the audience can easily find that information. Trish, again, thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing your vulnerability and just being real with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a platform to share our stories. So again, thank you for creating this and making it available to people. It's a gift beyond imagination. So thank you. Thank you, Trish. I appreciate that. And it's my pleasure. Before we end today, I would like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, follow, and subscribe so that you can easily find my podcast and listen again. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.